Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello. On today's episode, we'd like to give our first impressions of the FCC's September open meeting. I'm Mike Dover. I'm special counsel in the communications group. And I also have a Chip Yorkitis, who is a partner in the communications group, to discuss a couple of the items before the FCC yesterday. I'll be discussing the Commission's amendments to the Emergency Alert System Rules, EAS rules, in their report and order. Uh, Yesterday, the Commission considered and adopted changes to the country's emergency alert system rules. Generally, the EAS permits government agencies to send the public emergency alerts through television, radio, and uh, other media. In the report and order adopted yesterday, the Commission took steps to improve the clarity of the alerts and increase accessibility for hearing disabled persons by coordinating written visual alerts with the audio alerts. With a few exceptions I'll highlight in a moment, the Commission's report and order generally requires EAS participants, and that includes radio broadcasters, television broadcasters, and operators of satellite, cable TV, and wireline video services to check for, and when available, transmit alerts in the Common Alerting Protocol, or CAP format, when CAP format is available. The CAP format is an IP-based format, which generally provides additional information from the legacy format that's widely used today. Uh, In addition, uh, the amended rules replace outdated language currently in use in alerts so that the displayed text is more readily understandable by the public and requires updates to EAS equipment to implement the changes that the order um, contemplates. The Commission's report and order seeks to increase the use of of the CAP version of alerts with the goal of producing higher quality alert messages, improving the availability of multilingual alerts, and ensuring that alerts display all of the information provided by the government agency that initiated the alert. In addition, the commission, the commission's order also seeks to update the text to eliminate technical jargon, making the alerts more accessible and widely understood. Currently, The EAS rules permit but do not require EAS participants to check for CAP formatted versions of state and local area alerts when legacy EAS format alerts are received. The order adopted by the Commission yesterday now requires those participants to transmit the CAP version rather than the legacy version if the CAP version is available. Under the new procedure, when an EAS participant receives a valid legacy format alert, 
And except for three event codes that I'll discuss in a moment, the EAS participant must pull the iPaws feed for a cap version of the legacy alert at least 10 seconds after the detection of the legacy alerts initial header code. Now the iPaws feed is the integrated public alert and warning system. It uses the IP-based cap format. Uh, and the commission's wait 10 seconds before polling directive does not delay the normal time sequence for legacy alert transmissions, which usually takes 15 seconds. Uh, but it allows the EAS participants to look for and locate a cap version of the alert if it's available. The commission also notes that its new rules provide EAS participants flexibility to wait longer than 10 seconds if they believe their individual circumstances or um, usual polling cycle warrant. The commission also notes its adopted rules give EAS participants flexibility to wait longer than 10 seconds if they believe their individual circumstances or usual polling cycle warrants that. The new CAP polling and uh, prioritization rules require all EAS alert categories except the EAN event code. The EAN event code is the emergency action notification or more commonly known as the presidential alert. The NTP event code, which is the national periodic testing event code, and the RWT event code, and that's the required weekly test. Event code. The EAN event code is excluded because iPaws is not currently capable of reliably carrying live audio messages in CAP format in real time. And it's the commission's expectation, as they say in the order, that any presidential alert would contain a live audio message. The NTP event code is excluded because it would undermine the objectives of testing, which is essentially to uh, disseminate a legacy nationwide EAN alert and determine its capability. And lastly, the RWT event code is excluded because the alerts consist solely of tones without an audio or visual message and are merely used to ensure that the EAS equipment is functioning. Therefore, checking for a CAP IP version of the code is inapplicable. With regard to the text used in the EAS alerts, uh, the commission amends the rules to the actual language or text to be used in audio and visual messages generated for several of the codes, um, including EAN, NTP, which I just discussed, and the PEP event code and PEV. PEP is the primary entry point event code. The commission's intent in adopting the new text is to ensure that the text is using more straightforward language, which will enable more people to understand the alerts and permit deaf and hard of hearing persons to receive and comprehend critical information from the visual portion of the alert. As a result, the commission's rules make the following changes. The text for the EAN event code is changed from, quote, emergency action notification to, quote, national emergency message. The text for the NTP event code is changed from, quote, national periodic test to, 
quote, nationwide test of the emergency alert system. And the text for the PEP event code is changed from, quote, primary entry code system to, quote, United States government. And the commission's order explains the improvements that they're, they're seeking by simply comparing the text that's currently being used to the text that will be used under the new rules. So for example, under the existing rules, an alert using the PEP and EAN codes would read, the primary entry point system has issued an emergency action notification. Now, with these rule changes, the new version would read, the United States government has issued a national emergency message. Much more uh, simple to understand. Another example for, would be the, a nationwide test initiated by FEMA. The existing header would read, the primary entry point system has issued a nationwide periodic test. Under the new rules, that would be changed to read, the United States government has issued a nationwide test of the emergency alert system. It's important to note, however, for EAS participants that the commission declined to modify the e three-letter event codes to match the new text. As a result, EAS participants should be aware that even though the texts have changed for the event codes, uh, the EAN, NTP, and PEP event codes will still be used. The commission's rationale was that these event codes aren't seen by the public and therefore um, does not feel that the actual three-letter event code needs to be changed. In addition, the commission adopted its proposal to modify the text display used in visual crawl for EAS-based nationwide test alerts transmitted in legacy format. For text generated for a legacy nationwide test for PEP and NTP event codes in an all US geographic location code alert, the commission now requires video service EAS participants to display the, the following text. Quote, this is a nationwide test of the emergency alert system issued by the Federal Emergency Management Agency covering the United States from time A to time Z. This is only a test. No action is required by the public. However, the revised text will be displayed only when FEMA issues a nationwide test alert in legacy EAS format and therefore cannot use the enhanced text capability of CAP to explain the alert visually in greater detail. It's important to note that the new text for CAP formatted messages are unnecessary because FEMA can add explanatory text and ensure that the audio messages match the visual crawl in that circumstance. The commission's revised rules also require radio broadcasters to change the text for the NTP event code from national periodic test to nationwide test of the emergency alert system to avoid confusion to the public and ensure consistent usage of terms. However, the commission declined to require radio broadcasters to update their devices to accommodate the new prescribed script for legacy formatted NTP messages. In addition, 
uh, it's noteworthy, the commission uh, deleted the NIC or National Information Center event code because the National Information Center no longer exists. And the commission uh, in its rules are replacing the primary entry point system uh, to the term National Public Warning System or NPWS, which is consistent with FEMA's terminology and usage. Now, with a couple of exceptions that I'll discuss in a moment, the Commission's new rules establish a one-year time frame to implement these changes for all EAS participants, including radio broadcasters. The one-year effective date begins as of the date of uh, the effective date of the order. The Commission explains that the one-year time frame is sufficient given that most of the new rules changes can be accomplished through software updates to the EAS equipment. For example, the Commission explains that the EAN code text and removal of the NIC event can be accomplished via a software update that reg or through regular maintenance of the equipment before the deadline with minimal cost and minimal effort on the part of EAS manufacturers and participants. However, there are exceptions in the um, order, and uh, I'll discuss a couple of them. Uh, the order creates an exception for cable operators implementing the required change to the EAN text requirement. Because the text associated with EAN coded alerts is sometimes hardwired into downstream equipment in cable operators' networks, such as a set-top box that's controlled by the cable operator and installed at the customer's premises, the commission is permitting a limited exception under that circumstance. As a result, cable operators uh, must complete the transition of the new EAN text message display of national emergency alert within six years for that instance, but only to the extent that the change requires replacement of downstream equipment that cannot be safely updated via software update. The six-year timeframe comports with the average deployment of time for set-top box replacements. However, it's important to stress to cable operators that they must otherwise comply with the one-year deadline in all other respects. In addition, to accommodate customers with hearing uh, disabilities, cable operators must supply and, if necessary, install replacement devices capable of displaying the new EAN visual text upon request in the six-year time frame and must post information on the availability of such devices on their official website as soon as new or updated devices are available. In addition, with respect to cable card devices and smart TVs that are not controlled by cable operators, the Commission encourages manufacturers to update deployed devices where possible and ensure that future manufactured models reflect the new EAN text. Lastly, the Commission declined to take action related to persistent alert updates. A persistent alert update is an alert that remains on the EAS until the alert has expired or is canceled by the alert originator. Um, these alerts generally concern emergencies that require immediate protective action to mitigate lo loss of life, for example. However, uh, the legacy EAS does not enable the alert originator to retract or alter the alert once used 
the commission expressed concern that persistent alerts could become outdated or counterproductive if conditions changed. In addition, the commission expressed some concern that if a persistent alert were used using the legacy EAS, using a continuous audio and visual scroll, that would block news information or broadcast information that may be more up-to-date or helpful to uh, the general public. As I mentioned, the commission adopted the report and order detailing these new rules and requirements uh, yesterday, um, and the adoption was unanimous. We expect to see the final order published uh, very soon by the FCC. Now I'd like to turn it over to Chip Yorkitis, who will be discussing the commission's second report and order um, concerning the mitigation of orbital debris in the new space age. Chip? Thanks, Mike. Uh, for the second consecutive open meeting, the commission has addressed activities in space. Last month, uh, as we discussed in our August open meeting podcast, the FCC adopted a notice of inquiry to develop a record on in-space servicing, assembly, and manufacturing missions. Yesterday, the commission, in a second report and order, uh, in its 2018 uh, rulemaking regarding mitigation of orbital debris, uh, it adopted a rule for the first time that requires certain non-geostationary satellite operators, or NGSOs, uh, specifically those in a low Earth orbit, below 2,000 kilometers, to deorbit their satellites within a specific period. In particular, the new rule requires the affected operators to uh, deorbit their satellites within five years after the end of the satellite missions to minimize the risk of collisions that would create debris. The agency and others in government as well as industry, have in recent years increasingly decried the need to address orbital debris as that risk uh, grows. This is especially the case in low Earth orbit, or LEO, given the NGSO large constellation satellite systems that have begun, that have begun to launch recently. Some of these will consist of several thousands of satellites. And there are others that have been authorized and are yet to be launched. And many of these systems anticipate replacement satellites being launched on a periodic basis. Prior to the adoption of the second report and order, the official text of which has not yet been released, there were no legally binding requirements regarding the disposal of orbital debris, only guideline. The prevailing guideline which the commission had used and is now replacing in the second report and order is a 1990s era NASA guideline calling for satellites to deorbit within 25 years after the end of their mission. In 2004, the commission had developed rules on orbital debris uh, that consisted primarily of application disclosure requirements that would be considered by the commission in its overall determination uh, in whether to grant space station applications. Applicants under those rules uh, were required, for instance, to provide a statement detailing the post-mission disposal plans for the satellite uh, or their group of satellites, as the case may be, as they entered uh, their end-of-life stages, including the quantity of fuel, if any, that would be reserved for post-mission disposal maneuvers. In considering those, the Commission has been applying the 25-year guideline. In 2018, the Commission launched 
IB docket number 18313 to consider a comprehensive updating of its rules regarding orbital debris to better reflect the significant increase in the number of satellites and the type of operations that are in orbit. The first report in order uh, was issued in 2020 uh, and was accompanied by a further notice of proposed rulemaking, which sought comment on the probability of accidental explosions, collision risk for multi-satellite systems, maneuverability requirements, and casualty risk, among other topics. Of particular interest to us, the Commission sought comment in that further notice of proposed rulemaking on whether the 25-year guideline for post-mission disposal of NGSO satellites uh, is still a relevant benchmark for commercial or other non-federal systems. The adoption of the shorter benchmark of five years yesterday, as a rule, had broad support in the satellite industry, although certain concerns were raised on some of the details and the clarity about the potential availability of waivers uh, and a few other matters. In adopting the five-year rule yesterday, Chairwoman Rosenworcel noted that many of the pending items raised by the further notice in 2020 would be considered at a later time. Issues such as potential maneuverability, additional measures with regard to the large constellations and other possible approaches to mitigate uh, risks from orbital debris. But she said that in light of the growth of the numbers of satellites in orbit, now rather than later uh, is the time to take the action the commission adopted yesterday regarding the disposal of low earth orbit NGSOs. Both the chairwoman and the staff in the post-meeting press conference yesterday declined to say when further orders would be adopted to address other pending orbital debris-related issues raised in that 2020 further notice. So what do these new rules require? In general, all space stations authorized by the FCC, either through licensing by the commission or grants of U.S. market entry for satellites authorized by other nations may be subject to the rule. Those satellites that end their mission in or pass through a low Earth orbit region within 2,000 kilometers of the Earth's surface, and which also plan disposal through uncontrolled atmospheric re-entry following the completion of their missions, must complete disposal, quote, as soon as practicable and no later than five years after the end of the mission, close quote. Now, the commission defined end of mission in two circumstances. Generally, it would be the time at which the individual spacecraft is no longer capable of conducting collision avoidance maneuvers. For spacecraft that don't have those collision avoidance capabilities, end of mission will be defined as the point in which the individual spacecraft has completed its primary mission, uh, such as communication services, uh, remote sensing, and so forth. The FCC noted that the requirement will also apply to small satellites uh, licensed under the agency's streamlined processes, as well as uh, entities applying for satellites licensed under part five of the commission's experimental rules and part 97 uh, of the rules governing amateur radio satellites. The FCC noted that large constellations do impose specific risks to the orbital environment, and 
there may be uh, a reason to adopt, uh, although at a later time, a shorter post-mission orbital lifetime for such systems. So for now, they'll be subject to the five-year rule. The Bureau in the post-meeting news conference stated that further action in a later order regarding large constellations was indeed expected as the FCC continues to evaluate large constellations consistent with the revised rules and the other matters were raised in the further notice. Um, the draft order also indicates that the commission would consider conditioning large constellation authorizations on a case-by-case -case basis to address collision risk and post-mission disposal matters. Now the commission declined to prescribe a specific method of post-mission disposal at this time. In the draft order, uh, the commission recognized that satellite failures may give rise uh, to compliance issues. And it noted that clarification language would be added to the final order uh, during the discussion in the post-meeting news conference. Uh, that additional language would address the potential for waivers in such circumstances and other anomalies outside the operator's control. Uh, satellite operators uh, in the lobbying that occurred after the draft order came out three weeks ago uh, urged the commission to adopt explicit language recognizing that operators may seek and obtain waivers of the five-year requirement uh, for good cause. And they also asked that the commission articulate objective criteria for evaluating those waiver requests. And as I mentioned, the final order is not yet out. So if this is a matter of interest, uh, that should be uh, looked at to see what changed from the draft order. Now, uh, I've said that certain NGSOs are subject to the new rule. Which are those? Well, uh, let me first say that the commission was clear that satellites that are already in orbit are exempt from the new requirement. Satellites that are already authorized by the commission but have not yet been launched they will have a grandfathering period of two years uh, beginning uh, yesterday, the date of the open meeting, in order to allow uh, those operators to incorporate the new requirements into their systems and operations. New licensees and existing applicants with authorized satellites to be launched after September 29th, 2024, must comply with the five-year post-mission disposal requirement Although in individual cases, uh, the commission may consider waivers uh, under the specific circumstances presented, requesting additional time for systems with existing authorizations that extend beyond that two-year grandfathering period. Any applications granted involving space stations that would exceed the five-year limit uh, must need to be launched uh, prior to September 29th, 2024. Per the draft order, any licensee or grantee with a license or market access grant that doesn't specify a five-year or shorter post-mission disposal period as required by the new rule uh, must file their application for a modification by March 29th, 2024 with respect to any satellites that are scheduled to be launched uh, or expected to be launched uh, after September 29th, 2024. In the post-meeting news conference, uh, the staff noted that uh, 
regarding these modification applications, clarifying language would be added to the final order uh, to provide further guidance. Finally, the, the order addressed additional flexibility through waivers for scientific research satellite missions. Lurking underneath the order uh, is a question about the scope of the commission's authority to regulate space-based activities. Now the commission clearly has authority to license uh, communication spacecraft that orbit the earth and utilize non-federal frequency bands that the commission regulates, but the extent of its authority with regard to uh, space operations in general, and, and that includes uh, clearing space debris is less clear. In fact, Commissioner Carr in his comments at the open meeting reiterated concerns that he has had for some time now, what he calls a little bit of skepticism about the FCC going it alone. He voted in favor of the item, but he hopes for more coordinated efforts uh, with other federal agencies, for example, with NASA and the Department of Commerce, as well as the White House regarding uh, these matters of addressing the risks from orbital debris. As I mentioned at the top, this is the second item in two months the commission has adopted that will put its jurisdiction over space operations to the test. As we discussed in our last open meeting wrap-up podcast, uh, in August, the commission adopted a notice of inquiry to develop an up-to-date record on current in-space servicing, assembly, and manufacturing, uh, or ISAM, activities, and it seeks input on the steps the commission might take to facilitate ISAM missions, including through uh, updates to commission rules and processes in subsequent proceedings. The comments in response to the notice of inquiry adopted at the August open meeting uh, are due on October 31st, 2022. The public notice just came out in the federal register uh, a little over two weeks ago. Questions of jurisdiction may well be an element of many of the comments in that proceeding, and we'll be watching that. I also wanted to put the second report in order in a broader context of the federal concerns about orbital debris. On September 12th, U.S. Senator Maria Cantwell, a Democrat from Washington, chair of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation, and the Commerce Committee ranking member, Roger Wicker, a Republican from Mississippi, uh, joined two other senators to introduce the Bipartisan Orbital Sustainability Act, uh, a bill which would establish a first-of-its-kind demonstration program to reduce the amount of space junk in orbit, uh, as the press release said. Among among other provisions uh, in the Orbits Act, that are of interest to us in the context of this question of the FCC's jurisdiction, uh, there are those that would require uh, the Department of Commerce Office of Space Commerce or OSC, along with the National Space Council and the FCC to encourage the development of practices for coordinating space traffic, which will help avoid collisions that create debris. And another provision would encourage consistent orbital debris regulations by initiating a multi-agency update to existing orbital debris standards applicable to government systems. 
the final text uh, should be issued uh, shortly, incorporating some of those clarifications mentioned in the post-meeting press conference that I described. Uh, it was a unanimous decision. So thank you for joining us today. And we will be, will be back to cover the next meeting scheduled for October 27th. The commission's tentative agenda for that meeting will be announced on or about October 6th. So stay tuned and have a good day. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.